Last week, we kicked off a brand new series called Big Faith, Big Faith, and this is, we're talking about the kind of faith that changes the world. We're, kind of, we're talking about the kind of faith that shakes up uh, the kingdom of earth with the kingdom of heaven, and this is a series where we'll be looking at specific Old Testament characters. Now, for, for those of you who uh, have kind of disregarded the Old Testament as irrelevant, I hope to bring a fresh insight of relevance uh, from, from the lens of particular Old Testament characters by looking at their stories who exhibited extraordinary a gigantic, enormous, big faith. And I, wanna, I want us to look at uh, these stories for the duration of this series. You see, the truth of the matter is this, folks. God calls his people, you and I, to be a people of extraordinarily big faith. We talked about this some last week. Last week, we spent some time dreaming about what a church full of people that, that, who exhibit big faith might look like. A church that is set on fire with big faith. What can it look like for a church... Uh, to, to walk out this big faith. And if you miss that message or if you miss any of the, uh, the subsequent messages in this series, you can, you can log on our website or, or subscribe to our iTunes podcast and be all caught up that way. But we're continuing on in the series this morning. And I want us to examine the life of a particular person in the Old Testament and draw some faith principles from his life in order to discover what it means to live lives of truly big faith. Now, just as a caveat, the, the characters that we're going to be talking about in this series are not randomly chosen. They're not you know, random names picked out of a hat. These are names that are documented and recorded in what is commonly known as the Hall of Faith. And the Hall of Faith is found in Hebrews 11. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. Hebrews 11 is where we'll be spending our time here today. And you can just hold your place there for just a moment. Um, if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand. We'll have some folks coming around and they can hook you up with the Bible and uh, uh, follow along with us. And um, uh, if you don't own a personal copy of the Bible, Bible, go ahead and take this, consider this our gift to you, take this home with you, and uh, you, can, you can write your name in it, mark it up, and uh, uh, read along with us. But Hebrews 11 is where we'll be spending our time. If you are following along with us in these Bibles, we're on page 1007. 1007 is where we are here today. Now, we're going to be looking at, just fair warning, we're going to be looking at two different passages. We're going to be starting in Hebrews 11, but I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to a different passage here in just a few moments. In Hebrews 11, we find the famous hall of faith. Now, the hall of faith is exactly what it sounds like. It is the hall of fame for faith walkers. The hall of faith consists of people throughout biblical history who exemplified extraordinarily big faith. These are not the the stories of your average run-of-the-mill faith, but these are big faith stories, and these are the stories we're going to be looking at during this series. And the first character in the hall of faith is a guy by the name of Abel. And that's the story, whose, uh, story we're going to be unpacking here today. Now, you may recognize that name in the context of Cain and Abel. Even if you didn't grow up in church, Bible study, or Sunday school, you may have heard of the story of Cain and Abel, who happened to be the sons of Adam and Eve. Now, before we go into their specific story... I want to read why Abel is in the great hall of faith. I I want us to read what Hebrews 11 has to say about Abel, which is actually not going to take very long because there's only one verse dedicated to Abel's story, and it's found in verse 4. And so here we're going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. We'll also have it up here on the screen. And here's what Hebrews 11, uh, the hall of faith, has to say about Abel. By faith, listen now, 
Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Now, I want you to keep that word in the back of your mind. This is going to be a key word for us today, the word sacrifice. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts or his sacrifice. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, I realize there's not a lot to unpack there. So in order to understand what this verse is referencing, referencing, we need to go back to the original story of Cain and Abel, which is found in Genesis 4. And so I'm going to ask you to turn there to Genesis 4. You could just go ahead and move on from Hebrews 11. We're not going to turn back there for the duration of our time. Genesis, first book of the Bible, we're going to look at chapter 4. And that's where I'm going to spend most of our time here today. In Genesis 4... We're coming off the heels of Genesis 3 where we encounter the fall. And this is where Adam and Eve dis- disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit, right? You know the story. And, and as a result, they were exiled outside of paradise. They were uh, exiled outside of God's perfect provision, outside of his good presence. And it's in this context that Adam and Eve gave birth to their first children, Cain and Abel. And so we're going to pick it up from Genesis 4 right from the beginning, verse 1, and we'll carry it through to verse 8, and we'll unpack some faith principles here for our time this morning. Listen to what the word of the Lord says in Genesis 4. Now, Adam knew his, Eve, his wife. Now, when the Bible says Adam knew Eve, his wife, he's not saying, yeah, I know Eve, that's my wife. I know, you know, it's like I know Joey down, like, this is talking about sexual intimacy. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, the firstborn, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel, the younger son. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruits of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord comes around and he says to Cain, Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, some of you thought your families were messed up. Some of you thought you had dysfunction in your family. I want to pause the story right there. And, and leading on, you'll find the famous line where Cain comes to God, where he's being questioned by God. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain responds, am I my brother's keeper, right? Am I, am I, you know, am I supposed to know where my brother is at all times? But I want to pause the story right there and just say, uh, maybe state what what is obvious here, maybe, maybe not, I, I don't know, but if I were to be honest here this morning, if I were to think about big faith, that's the series, talking about big faith, this is not the story that would come to the forefront of my mind. Abel would not be the first character that I think of that I would want recorded in the great hall of faith. I mean, Abel's story 
by and large, seems insignificant in the grand scheme of life, does it not? I, I mean, there's not a whole lot to the story. If you look at his story, we find that he was a shepherd. He offered God a sacrifice. And then he was murdered. Boom, end of story. I mean, that, that, is, that is Abel's story in a nutshell. And so you look at his story, and, and it begs the question, where does big faith show up in Abel's life? It shows up in that key word that I asked you to tuck away earlier, just a few moments ago. Big faith in Abel's life shows up in his sacrifice. In his sacrifice. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. Today I want to talk about this concept of sacrifice for a little bit. And to give you a little background here, I want to give you just a quick crash course on Old Testament theology because without this context, the word sacrifice isn't going to mean a whole lot to you in light of big faith, in the light of Abel's story, in light of what we're talking about here. Now, the story tells us that Cain and Abel were both offering a sacrifice to God, right? They were both offering this, this sacrifice to, to the Lord and laying it before the altar. But the question is, for what purpose? For what purpose were they offering the sacrifice? You see, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were made to atone for one's sins. In other words, they, they, these people were ordered to, to, to com, commanded by God to lay before God these sacrifices of offering to make right their wrongs, to atone for their sins. But contrary to modern-day thought, to your thought and my thought, as we know as, as sin today, sin was not simply understood to be a wrongful action. Sin was rather an internal condition. Sin was not just a wrongful deed or a wrongful action. Sin, from this point of view, was understood to be an internal condition. And this is where we have veered off track from biblical understanding of sin in modern day. We think that sin is just is doing something evil. Sin is doing something bad. And so we can recognize when we have sinned, but many of us don't like to recognize that we are sinners. Now, when we start using that language, you're, you're hitting a little cl too close to home, Pastor Dan. You're calling me a sinner. You're calling me that there's something internally and intrinsically wrong with me. From a biblical perspective, the answer is absolutely yes. Sin is not just a wrongful action. Sin is a, an internal condition. In fact, wrongful actions exist in the first place because we are wrongful people by nature. Wrongful actions exist all throughout the course of history because we are wrongful people by very nature. The Bible tells us, in fact, that there is no one righteous, not even one. Now, that's, that's kind of the reality. Maybe that's bad news. Good news will be coming here in just a moment. But, but in light of that, we know that God, okay, here's us. We are sinful, broken people and all of these things. On the other hand, we see a God who is perfectly just and who is perfectly moral. And in his perfectly just and perfectly moral nature, we are, we are, we are left with this incredible chasm, this divide of us being in this unrighteous state and, and, and given this holy, righteous God. And God says the only way that chasm, that divide can be bridged is through a sacrifice, it's through an offering of sacrifice. The only way the bridge can be, the divide can be bridged between a holy, righteous God and a broken, unrighteous people is if a sacrifice is given. Now, in the Old Testament, that sacrifice 
was the sacrificial system that was put in place for that very purpose. So when someone made a sacrifice before God, you got to understand what was happening here. It wasn't just ritual. People think the sacrificial system was just ritual. You, you killed an animal, you laid it on the altar, and that the deed was done. Rather, there was a spiritual component to this where when people made a sacrifice of offering before God, they were essentially transferring their sin on whatever they were sacrificing, whereby they would be cleansed in the burning of that sacrifice. When they laid that sacrifice on the altar, it was as if they were laying their sinful nature, not just their sinful deeds, not just their wrongful actions, but their very sinful nature. They were transferring that on the animal, and in that sacrifice, it was understood that they were cleansed in the burning of that sacrifice. Now, this is what Cain and Abel were doing. They were both offering up sacrifices before God to atone for their sins, but the question is, why is Abel recognized in the hall of faith and not Cain? If they were both doing what they were commanded to do by the ordinance of God, they were both offering sacrifices to God to atone for their sins, why was Abel recognized as a man of big faith, recognized in the hall of faith, but not Cain? Why is it that Abel's sacrifices looked upon favorably and not Cain? The answer to that question is actually our big idea for the day. If you're taking notes down, you could jot this note down. In, in whatever you're taking down uh, your notes on. The answer to this question is when it comes to sacrifice, here's the bottom line. How you sacrifice is more important than what you sacrifice. How you sacrifice is more important than what you sacrifice. Friends, I want to clue you in on a fundamental truth. The Christian life is all about, hate to break it to you, but it is all about living a life of sacrifice and how you live that life of sacrifice deeply matters. In fact, Romans chapter 12 tells us to offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. And that means every part of our lives, every nook and cranny of our lives, we surrender to God and we hand over to Christ. The faith journey is a journey of surrender. It's a journey where we, when we follow Christ, it's journeying with open-handedness and saying, God, I don't claim to hold anything of my own for myself. I surrender it all to you. As we sang earlier, I surrender. I surrender. I give it all over to you. And this is what it means to follow Christ. And Paul says, this right there, when you live this life of surrender and sacrifice before God, this is your spiritual act of worship. This, at its core essence, is what it means to be a Christ follower. And so a lot of people read the story, and here's, here's kind of the conclusion that we draw. Well, God accepted Abel's offering. In fact, many scholars have debated on this, but they say, well, God accepted Abel's offering because Abel gave God a sheep, whereas Cain gave God some produce, right? So, so sheep trumps cabbage, right? Like, you know, like animal trumps Strawberries, like, and, and at a very cursory level, at the most basic level, one can easily draw that conclusion of, well, just the nature of the offering was different, right? It, it was, there's nothing to it. Like, Cain gave the, a produce offering, and, and Abel gave an animal offering, and that's why God accepted Abel's, but that's a faulty way of thinking, because when you journey in further into the Old Testament and at various points in Scripture, we see that God actually accepts grain offering. He accepts produce offering. He accepts all kinds of offering beyond just the animal offering. And so we know that that can't be it. 
You see, Abel's big faith was rooted in how he sacrificed and not what he sacrificed. And so the question for us today is, how do we sacrifice? As people who are called to live a life of sacrifice, to live lives of big faith, how are we called to sacrifice in a way that reflects big faith? Now today, I just want to give you two ways we can sacrifice in a big faith kind of way. The first is this. We sacrifice our best and not the rest. When we sacrifice, if we want to sacrifice as people of big faith, we've got to learn how to sacrifice our best and not the rest. You see, people with big faith understand that God deserves our very best and not our rest. Notice the nature of Abel's offering. The text says this in verse 4. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. You see, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. He wasn't concerned about saving it for himself. Or he wasn't thinking, you know what? Once I've acquired enough livestock, then out of my surplus I will give. Then I will give out of my excess. No, Abel gave right off the top. He gave the firstborn even before he had enough for himself. But church, if we were to be really honest... Isn't this what we do in our walks with God? Isn't this what we do in our faith journeys? Don't we say often things to the effect of, once I have enough for myself, then I'll give. Once I have enough in the bank account, then I'll give in the offering. Once I have enough time at the end of the day, then if I have enough time to spare, then I'll spend some time in prayer and in reading scripture. If I have enough energy and, 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 and you know, output by the end of the day, then I'll go to that Bible study or that life group. Then I'll go to that group meeting. If I have enough, then I'll give. And here's what we do. We play this whole if-then scenario with God. If I have enough, then I'll give. But how many of you know that is so far removed from the heart of sacrifice? You, you remember that story of, of the widow's might? If you grew up in church, you may have know that, heard that story, and Jesus recognizes this widow's mite who brings in a little two copper coins, right? Worth absolutely nothing in antiquity. I mean, you know, economy was different back then, but still, this woman brings in two copper coins that represents absolutely nothing. And Jesus says, this woman gave more than all those people who gave masses of money because all those people gave out of their excess gave out of their surplus, but this woman gave right off the top everything she had. She gave it to the Lord. You see, big faith people know how to give the best and not the rest. Not only did Abel give his firstborn, we also see that Abel gave God the fat portion. Now, this might not mean a whole lot to you in present day because, you know, particularly because we don't have the sacrificial system that we abide by. But the fat of an animal, you got to understand, people, was understood to be the most valuable part of the animal. It was understood to be the most, it represented richness and abundance and exuberance and supreme excellence. And so, in other words, the fatter the animal, the richer and more valuable the offering was. And so you got a nice fattened calf or a fattened sheep or a fattened livestock and you lay that before the Lord and that meant a special offering. That meant, man, I am giving God the, the best of the best. 
Abel gave the fat portions. And here we see that Abel not only gives the firstborn, but also the very best part of his flock. Abel gave his best and not the rest. You see, people of big faith, the kind of people that I believe God is calling us to, I believe God calls us to sacrifice in this way. They see God. Do you, know, you want to know why big faith people give God their best and not the leftovers and not the scraps? Because big faith people see God through faith-filled lenses. And when you see God through faith-filled lenses, you begin to see God for all his worth. That's what it comes down to. That's what worship is. Worship isn't just singing songs. How many of you know that? Worship, when you break it down, breaks down into two simple words, worth-ship. It is giving something or someone value and worth, attaching value and worth to something. That's what big faith people do. Big faith people worship God by giving God their very best. Why? Because they see God for what he is worth. They see God for who he is, that he is the everlasting God, the beginning and the end and everything in between. He is the God who spoke light into darkness. He is the God who sustains you, who gives you breath in your lungs so that you can sit here, eyes wide open, breathing, enjoying life. God is the God who gives us every good and perfect gift. And when we see God for who he is and see God through faithful lenses, you cannot help, you cannot help but give God your very best. You wouldn't even dare think for a moment, I'm going to give God my leftovers. I'm going to give God my scraps. And so practically speaking, here's what this looks like. We give God the best of our energies. We give God the best of our resources. We give God the best of our time. In other words, we prioritize our lives around God. Not around our social lives, not around our academics, not around anything else, but we prioritize our lives around God. And so when you're looking at your week, I know many of you, you look at your week and you're like, oh, so much to do, I'm overwhelmed, and all these things need to get done. Here's, can I, can I just challenge you with a big faith challenge? When you're looking at your week and you're trying to schedule out your time and schedule out your days, you may want to consider asking questions like, how can I schedule my week in a way that brings God the most honor and the most glory? How can I design my schedule, design my week, so that God gets the very best of me and not my scraps and not my leftovers? That if I have enough time and energy by the end of the day, then maybe I'll carve out some time to be with the Lord. Then maybe I'll carve out some time to be in fellowship with the body of Christ. If then, if then... How can I utilize my time so that God receives my very best and he's not left with the rest? Let me tell you, church, if you're not consciously asking these questions, you're going to end up giving God your scraps because what you prioritize will be what gets your time. What you prioritize will be what gets your attention. What you prioritize, what you focus on, will be what gets your firstborn and your fat portions. You don't give your fat portions and your firstborn as an afterthought. The firstborn and the fat portions are given when you begin to think about how can I give God my very best and not the rest. Big faith people understand that God is most worthy of our sacrifice, but not just any kind of sacrifice, but a sacrifice that represents our very best. 
Not only do we sacrifice, not only do big faith people sacrifice their very best and not the rest, but here's number two. We sacrifice from the heart and not habit. We sacrifice from the heart and not habit. Now, let me just say this. I'm not knocking habits. Uh, in fact, some of us can use some good habit in our lives. In fact, I think developing healthy habits is very important. But how many of you know you can do something out of habit completely void of any meaning or heart behind it? You can do something out of habit just because it's habit, void of any meaning or heart behind the thing that you are doing. If you look at how the story progresses, you find that both brothers offered God a sacrifice. That's habit. They came to God and offered the sacrifice out of habit. But you soon come to discover that their hearts were in vastly different places. In fact, the Lord goes on so far as to expose Cain's heart in verses 6 and 7. By the way, let me just say this. You can often tell the condition of one's heart by their sacrifice. Oftentimes, you can tell what someone values on a heart level based on their sacrificial level. For instance, when a parent, listen, when a parent gives up their hopes and dreams in order to see their kids' hopes and dreams come to pass, that says something about the parent's heart for the kid. Sacrifices often expose what is laying deep within someone's heart. And that's what God was doing here with Cain. Now, I know this is Abel's story, but you got to understand what's going on with Cain's heart to understand what's going on in Abel's heart. He was, God was exposing what was in Cain's heart. In verse 6, listen to what God says. The Lord comes to Cain, and he says, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? Now, I, I said this before in ACF here at various points, but whenever you see the Lord asking a question, it's, be, it's not because he don't know the answer to the question. God knows all answers to every single question that he has asked. He's not asking for his sake. He's asking for Cain's sake so that Cain can do some honest soul searching. This question is not for God. It's for Cain. He says, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? He goes on in verse 7. He says, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? He's implying that the reason his offering wasn't accepted was because of how he gave and not what he gave. He's not saying, hey, listen, Cain, I'm looking at your sacrifice. It ain't good enough. I give it like a, maybe like a four. I was kind of looking for an eight. You know, couldn't you like give me some ripe fruit or some ripe vegetables? He wasn't looking at the quality of the, the, the offering. He was looking at the condition of his heart. The condition of his heart. He, and he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He might have been giving out of habits, but his heart wasn't in the right place. He says, and if you do not do well, listen now. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, in a lot of ways, this is the foreshadow of what is to come because just a couple of verses later, what do you find? You find Cain calling out to Abel, hey, bro, come out to the field. Come on out, man. Let's just have a bro-to-bro -bro talk, you know, like, and he calls him out for what? To kill him. We see the first murder documented in Scripture, premeditated murder, murder in the first degree. Cain was driven by the sin in his heart, and he kills his brother Abel. Here's the hard truth, folks. This is the truth that you and I have got to come to terms with if we're going to walk as people of big faith. Let me rewind. 
Forget even big faith. Just as a follower of Jesus, we've got to come to terms with this. You see, on this side of heaven, you and I are stuck, whether we like it or not, you and I are stuck with this reality of sin crouching at our door, seeking to rule our lives. That is a principle that is irreplaceable on this side of heaven. And nothing will steer us off track from big faith living quicker than sin that is undealt with in your lives. You want to live lives of big faith? Deal with your sin. You want to live lives of big faith that's marked with big faith, the kind of faith that says that that Jesus looks upon and says, man, that is amazing. I haven't seen faith like that in all the land before. If we want to live lives of big faith, we got to deal with our sins. You see, people with big faith aren't just big dreamers. Last week, we spent a lot of our time just dreaming about what big faith living might look like. But big faith people aren't just big dreamers. They're people who see big problems with sin. They take sin very seriously. They don't don't say, ah, ah, sin, that's for like my parents' church. They deal with sin, you know, like, but, but like this is a college church. We're at Penn State University. We don't talk about sin, you know. It's just not something that we really verbalize. But big faith people take sin very seriously. I love, I love what Tim Keller says. I want to share a quote with you here this morning. Tim Keller is, um, is, a, is a pastor from New York City, and he's written several New York Times bestseller books, and he's a brilliant mind of our day and for our generation. And I really appreciate what he has to say here regarding sin. And I want you to listen up. He says, sin is predatory. I love that. I love that definition. I love that description. That's the picture that this passage is painting. Sin crouching at our door is like a picture of a predator predator ready to, to pounce at any opportune moment. He says sin is predatory. Sin has a deadly life of its own. How is that? Sin has an abiding, growing presence in your life. If you commit sin, Sin is not over. Sin is not simply an action. As I mentioned earlier before, sin is not simply an action. It's a force. It's a power. He goes on and he says, when you do sin, it's not now over, but it actually becomes a presence in your life. It takes shape, a shadow shape, and stays with you and begins to affect you. Eventually, it can just take you out. When you sin, the sin doesn't just go away. The sin becomes a presence in your life. You start by doing sin, but then sin does you. It will harden you. Friends, I don't know if you've ever been there. Where you begin to dabble with a little bit of darkness. And you put, put, put your toe in, 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 in the world of darkness a little bit by a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. And eventually, somewhere down the line... You become blinded to the light because your eyes have become used to the darkness. All of a sudden, you can't handle the the exposing work of God's Holy Spirit in your lives because you have become too accustomed to a life of darkness. Have you ever been there? I know I have. I know I've found myself struggling with sin so far deep that I don't even remember what the light of Christ looks like. It hardens you. Sin is a power, it's a force that when you keep giving into it, it will have you. It will work you to your core. It will harden you. Keller, he turns the script a little bit and he points to this very story that we're looking at here today. He goes on and he says these words. 
he says, do you see the difference already in this family? He's talking about the original family, Adam and Eve's family. When God comes to Adam and Eve and God says, what have you done? You remember that in Genesis 3, after, upon eating the forbidden fruit, God comes to them and, he, and, and God says, what have you done, guys? At least they're kind of abashed and sheepish. Adam is saying, my wife made me do it. And the wife says, the serpent made me do it. But here, God comes to Cain and says, Cain, what have you done? And he says, do you think I'm supposed to keep tabs on that guy? There's a hardening. First, you start to do sin, and then sin does you. It becomes a presence in your life. Friends, the truth is this. If you don't deal with sin in your life now, sin will eventually deal with you. If you don't deal with sin in your life now, sin will find a way to eventually deal with you. That's why God tells Cain, hey, Cain, though sin crouches at your door, you must what? Rule over it. You must rule over it. You must deal with your sin now. Get your heart right before God right now. And even as I'm talking, I know that there are some of you, certain sin patterns are coming to mind. And your natural inclination is going to want to push it away and say, no, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. Let me tell you, the more we push away God's exposing, convicting work, the further we're walking away from this call to live lives of big, extraordinary faith. You ain't going to see lives of big faith. You're not going to see kingdom-shaking moves as long as we're living in this place of sin. You see, the reason why Abel, the reason why Abel is in the great hall of faith and not his brother, Cain, is not be, it wasn't because Cain was a murderer. Uh, you know, Cain gets a bad rap for obvious reasons, right? He was a murderer. And we think that that is what disqualified him from being in the hall of faith. And that was probably a clear and easy disqualifier. You can't be a murderer and be in the hall of faith. But you have to rewind a little bit further. The murder happened because of Cain's heart that was sin-stained and sin-ridden. The murder wasn't the primary issue, folks. Sin was. Your pornography issue isn't the primary issue. It's the sin in your heart. The sin that drove Cain to murder, here's the truth. That sin that drove Cain to murder lies deep within every single one of us. Now, before you freak out, I'm not saying that we're all going to end up becoming murderers. That, that's not what I'm saying. But here is what I'm saying. You cannot live in big faith and live in sin simultaneously. It doesn't work that way. One will find a way to master you and rule your life. And so we've got to come to this place where our daily prayer is, God, give me a pure heart. Give me clean hands that would seek your face, that we might become a generation of people that would seek your face, O God of Jacob. we got to be a people that learns how to pray the prayer that in Psalm 24, give us clean hands, pure heart, God. We want to be a people like, like Jesus said, these people come to worship me in spirit and in truth. God, I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. I don't want to just worship out of emotion, out of, out of a place of feel-good moments on a Sunday morning. God, I want to worship you from a fully examined heart. I want to worship you from a Psalm 139 kind of place where I come before you, God, and I say, God, search me and know me. Know my every anxious thought. See if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. God, would you examine my life? 
Would you see if there's anything in my life that offends you, that causes you to say, no, no, son, daughter, this is an area that we need to cleanse and work out. God, make us a generation of people of big faith. In order to be that, we've got to be a people of big sacrifice, but not just any kind of sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice where we give God our very best because we know he's worthy of it all. And the kind of sacrifice that is pure and free from any entanglement of sin.